0: The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at HiltonHeadPCA.com. Well, this morning we are beginning a new series. A series that actually began about this date, October 31st, in 1517, when Martin Luther, a young monk and then priest, Came under the conviction of his conscience and of the word, and at the doors of All Saints Church in Wittenberg, Germany, he posted his now famous 95 Theses. And in that, he was working towards a renewal, a reformation within the Roman Catholic Church of the day. And so we're starting uh, this series alone, these truths alone. And by way of disclaimer, no Bibles have been destroyed in the decoration and decor of the church. I've already heard from some of you, you tore up Bibles? The irony of that couldn't be bigger of we're celebrating Martin Luther and God's Word, so we'll destroy God's Word. No, these are old uh, books and uh, some things there uh, to have. Uh, But we come and we are looking this morning, and we are are in some ways, we're we're not celebrating Luther. I want you to hear that very clearly. We're not even necessarily celebrating uh, the solas. We're celebrating the truths of Scripture, which led uh, Luther uh, and others, many others—Tyndale and of uh, Hendrik Swingley and John Calvin uh, and uh, and Bullinger and Bucer and Beza—and uh, all of these men and women of the Reformation to make a stand upon something and say. There is truth that supersedes the truth that we're being presented through the church. That we are going back to Scripture, and in our study of Scripture, there is a conviction of conscience, not Jiminy Cricket conscience, but a conviction of the heart, a conviction of the person, bound now by God's Word to look and to say, something's not right in the church. What wasn't right in the church in those days, Luther, as a young uh, monk studying, thought, well, if I become a priest, I can become closer uh, to God. I'll know more. So he studied and became uh, a priest, and he became a teacher within uh, the theology departments there. And what he found was that there were errors within the church. There were indulgences being sold uh, by the church, uh, that if you wanted your sins forgiven, you would simply buy an indulgence. You didn't have to really have Christ, per se, but you would just pay the church a certain amount of money, and on this piece of paper, your sins were forgiven. And if you had a loved one who had perished, you could go ahead and buy one on their behalf, and they would be forgiven, ultimately, of their sins. That the Mass was in Latin, and the people didn't understand the Mass, and so uh, they didn't, they weren't able to connect with God's Word because God's Word was in Latin, And so, there wasn't a common Bible for the people to study uh, and to understand. And there were all these different things happening within the church. And Luther wrote his 95 Theses and using what was the social media of his day, took his 95 Theses, posted them on those doors, because that's how you would engage in a discussion, a formal discussion that he put them there on the doors at All Saints, and he was inviting the church leaders to engage because Martin Luther was a naive enough young man to think that Rome really wanted to know what was going on in the church. He, he thought, the Pope is busy, and the Pope may not understand what's happening over here in the Holy Roman Emperor, in, in, in Empire in Germany, and I want him to see these things. And so I'm going to write these 95 theses because I believe that the Pope is a good man, and he wants truth. He had no idea that what he was starting would revolutionize the world as we know it. One of the, if not the largest singular event within the world is the Protestant Reformation. And coming from uh, this event, we have our church, the protesting church, Protestant church, that the Protestant church, the protesting church, moving uh, through Europe uh, and then into England and then through the missionary works around the world, uh, brought to us the Scriptures as we know them today. Literally, Martin Luther translated the New Testament into German, and the German people had a language written for the very first time ever through the work of Martin Luther, and with a few other scholars quickly did the Old Testament, And they were given to the people that now the people could read the Bible in their own language. Now, Huss and Tyndale uh, and others had died for those very things, for getting the Bible into the hands of people. And Luther knew exactly uh, the cost. That's why he wrote that great hymn, A Mighty Fortress Is Our God, Though My Body Be Burned, Though My Body Be Lost. uh, That's okay, because I have to stand for what is true And so, I don't want this to be a history lesson. We're going to come to God's Word. But within the context of the Reformation, there were these statements that were made. They weren't made by Luther. You're not going to find these five solas, onlys, alones, uh, anywhere in the Reformation writing, per se. These are a creation of about 125 years ago for us to understand and to know this is the meat or this is the heart of the Reformation teaching. And in it uh, was sola scriptura, Scripture alone. Sola gratia, faith, uh, grace alone. Sola fide, faith alone. Solus uh, Christos, by Christ alone. Soli deo gloria, for the glory of God alone. The key within all five of those, the tying piece within all five of those, is the word alone. I want you to do uh, an experiment. Change that word out for and. For that was the theology of the day. Scripture and... Papal decree, Scripture and creeds and church councils, Scripture and was the authority for all of life in the church, grace and works of the individuals, faith and good works, Christ and you, all to the glory of God and your own life and the church. And so, what we look at are paramount in our understanding of who we are, what we believe. And these truths still resonate today, folks. There's a book that I've put out in the Resource Center written by James Montgomery Boyce, former pastor uh, at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, uh, called Whatever Happened to the Gospel of Grace, Rediscovering the Doctrines that Shook the World. Uh, And Dr. Boyce, who is now with the Lord and seeing all of these things in true light, uh, wrote this in a pastoral and theologian's heart, and so they're available for purchase. I hope that you'll get them. I was talking to a few folks this week that have looked at the PBS special, on, which has done very well on Luther. I would commend that to you. I thought they did a great job uh, on that, and there are some other really good works uh, about this theology and about these truths, but today we're going to be looking at not the truth which sort of spurred Luther on. That was solo fide, of by faith alone. But it was when he was studying it, he came back and said, this is what Scripture says. And if Scripture says it, even if it is in opposition to what the Pope says, even if it is in opposition to what angels say, even if it is in opposition to what councils say, even if it is in opposition to anything, even my own conscience, I have to go by God's Word because it's Scripture alone. Soli du Gloria. All of things to the glory of God. And Scripture alone, sola scriptura, is the, the, the base of it all. So we're going to read a couple of passages this morning that will set the benchmark for us as we approach. So would you pray with me now for God's favor and blessing uh, on the reading of His Word. Father, we ask that You would now bless us, bless Your Word, that it is Your Word, and that You would speak to us through Your Word. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We'll be looking at Paul's writing to Timothy in the 2nd Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 and following, and then over from the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 4. This is the very word of the Lord. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love and steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. Uh, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and for reproof and for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And in Hebrews, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, Piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This is the word of the Lord. May he add his blessing to the reading and to the hearing of it. Amen. Sola Scriptura. Scripture alone. You see, we live in a world that is filled with competing truth claims. Constantly and regularly, we are bombarded by claims and declarations that something is true and thereby something else is false. Uh, We're told what to believe and what not to believe. We're told how to live. We're told what not to do uh, within our lives, how to behave and how not to behave. We're we're told uh, about the beginnings of the universe. We're told about how man was created and evolved uh, into what we are today. The world is filled with truth claims. And so how is it that we as Christians, as human beings, How is it that we come and we sift through all of these different claims? Uh, How do people know uh, what to think about relationships? How do we know what to think about morality, uh, about God, about the origins of the universe, uh, and the many other important questions that are out there? You see, in order to answer these types of questions, and we all have them, you need some sort uh, of norm You need some sort of truth, uh, a true authority, an ultimate authority. And of course, uh, everybody in the world has an ultimate authority. Everybody who makes any kind of truth claim uh, has an ultimate authority. Nine out of ten dentists say that this is the best toothpaste that you can use. That research has been done, and this is the best diet pill uh, that you can take, uh, that you have an ultimate source of empiricism or of relativism or of whatever uh, that you use, but you say, this is the ultimate. For the Christian, our ultimate source, our ultimate norm is God's Word. And what Luther and the other uh, reformers had come to uh, was that this and this alone— is the authority within the life of the believer. It doesn't mean that there aren't other authorities, councils and advice and other things within the church. It just means that this is the ultimate authority. We still use creeds. We still use confessions. Uh, We still look back to church councils of Nicaea uh, and of Constantinople. uh, And we look at the work that has been done within those. And we sit and we go, there's an authority within their words. But it is a derived authority because God's word is at the top. And so here we come to an authority and that we understand that there is no higher authority than God himself. And so with that in mind, we're going to look uh, at several things this morning. We're going to look and see that there's a problem uh, within the world with these competing truth claims, and it's an ancient problem and a current problem. Uh, we're going to look at what the solution is that God has presented to us, and then what are the benefits of this solution? What do we do there for? Uh, what should we do with this solution? So the problem, where do we go to find ultimate truth? You've already heard me say that there are competing truth claims uh, within the world. And you recognize, of course, that this isn't new to us. This wasn't something that just happened in 1517, and Luther went, what in the world? We've had no competing truth claims, and now we have competing truth claims, and so I've got to run back to the Word of God. No, you see, this is a problem that began all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. Because in Genesis chapter 2, God spoke to Adam, said, Adam, I've made you, I've done all of this, here's the deal. You get to have everything you want in the garden, but of one tree you don't get to eat, because if you eat of that one tree, you're going to die. Enter in Satan in the form of the serpent in chapter 3, and he said, did God make that truth claim It's really not true, and God's not the ultimate authority, because God didn't really mean you were going to die. I mean, you're not really going to die if you eat of a tree. God is actually jealous, and he's insecure, and he can't be trusted, because what God says is, what he really knows is that if you eat of that tree, your eyes will be enlightened, and you will be on equal footing with him, and God is incredibly insecure, and incredibly narcissistic, and he wants to keep you uh, down, so that's why you shouldn't eat of the tree. So Eve, Adam, eat competing truth claims right there in the beginning of the Bible. And all of humanity has battled this same problem from day one. What is truth? Pilate standing before Jesus. What is truth? Asking, what's your truth claim? What are you claiming and standing upon? And then you would come, and Paul uh, here in this passage of Scripture uh, was saying, first century, by the way, after Christ had resurrected, everybody said, hey, there are going to be people in the church who go out from the church, and they're going to be teaching truth claims to you, but they're deceivers. Verse 13, they're trying to deceive you. They're imposters. They're going out within the church. They're going out under the guise of the church, even under the authority of the church, but they're going to have ands instead of alones. They're going to say, you need Christ and circumcision." You need Christ and wisdom, Gnosticism over here, uh, Jewish Judaizers over here, a little bit of mixture, a little and in the mix of your theology. That yes, you need faith, but that faith is generated by you. So it's not really Christ alone, it's Christ and something else. Well, the problem kept going on from the garden and to Christ and Pontius Pilate to Paul And the church there, even into the 1500s. And so, Luther found himself standing now, as it were, in 1521, standing just a few years later, after four years of this perking around within the Holy Roman Emperor, and he found himself standing before the Holy Roman Emperor himself, seated on his throne, rather intimidating, Didn't matter what your, it wasn't a democracy. You didn't get to say, I didn't vote for you, so I'm not going to the White House. I don't like your policy, so I'm not going. He said, Luther, show up. Yes, sir. And Luther showed up. The heads of the church, not the Pope, but the archbishops were there at the Diet of Worms. Not the Diet of Worms. (laughs) They weren't eating worms but it was the Diet of Worms, and Luther was standing there, and he was going to have to give an account of competing truth claims, because what was really going and being pushed here was the question, Luther, do you believe the Pope is infallible? Luther did not want to answer that question. And the first day within the Diet of Worms, he stumbled and bumbled around. He was less than articulate, and it was not a good day. For the Reformation. But on the next day, Luther came and Luther looked and he said, Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by the clear reason. For I do not trust either the Pope or in the councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. I am bound by the scriptures that I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not retract anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. May God help me. Amen. And again, when I say conscience and when he says conscience, it is not Jiminy Cricket. It is the conviction of his heart. It is his very person of saying, my conscience, my being is bound by this word. And I cannot go against it even though I'm standing in front of a man who is going to put a bounty on my head and can make me an outlaw. Even though I'm standing in front of men who have burned other men and women for similar claims that I am making today, I am ready. Here I stand. I can do no other. With knees trembling, but with feet planted firmly upon a rock of God's Word. You see, there has been a problem of competing truth claims. And by the way, it's no better today. You Christians are so narrow-minded. You're short-sighted. You're haters. You're not accepting. You're not open. You're narrow on these things. What do you mean there can be a standard, a truth claim, a truth that is true truth? Oh, how? That is uh, oh, that's so oppressive. Well, what is the other truth claim? All truth is derived as a social construct. Therefore, within our society today, we have this social construct of truth, but it will move and it will evolve over the course of time as men and, and women become more enlightened. Then we will realize that truth will become more enlightened, and you are just standing upon a truth that was written a long time ago, but it's a low T, not a capital T. And for the believer, we live within this tension. You live within this tension every single day. That's the problem. It's the same problem that Adam had, Christ had per se, that Paul endured, the writer of the Hebrews endured, Luther and all of the reformers endured, all Christians in all times have endured. It's that problem. So what's the solution to the problem that we find ourselves in? The solution is this. God says, no, there actually is authority. There is a truth, and it is a truth that you can know, and it is the Scriptures. He says, listen, these things are competing, but there is true truth. There are 66 books inspired by the Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity, equal with God the Father and God the Son in power and in glory, working through men over the course of time, held and preserved for us in this canon that we have and that we can put our total and absolute faith in because this is how this book is described. By God himself, all scripture is breathed out of, by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. You see, this word of God, it's not dead. It's living and it's active. It's a living thing and it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the divisions of soul and of spirit of joints and of marrow discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart and no creature is hidden from its sight but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account he says but we are, are to keep and to understand uh, this word that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ all of these are need to be acquainted with the secret writings or the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. What God is saying is there is a tension, but I've given you my word. There is a solution. You, you don't have to go to social constructs. You don't have to go to other things. There actually is a truth and a truth that you can stake your life on. And that this truth, this scripture is God breathed. It, it is his very life given to us. It comes from Him, Himself. It is an extension of Himself. Think about it this way. The very words, the very voice, the very breath that spoke everything into existence is now on these pages. The the very word and the very breath which breathed life into Adam's lungs, we have In this book, Uh, the very breath and the words uh, of power that spoke to Christ and raised him from the dead and seated him at the Father's right hand, we have here this is God's actual words. These aren't just black and red letters on a white page. This is the very life of God, His word given to us. Peter said, There's no prophecy that has ever been produced by the will of man. This isn't about man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by his Holy Spirit, 2 Peter 1, 21. You see, this is the word of God. It is inspired by God. It is his very inspired, infallible word. And how much of it is that? All of it. He says all of it is. Not part of it, but all of it this. All that is contained uh, within these 66 books, these 66 letters, is God's Word. And you may think, yeah, so what? Well, here's the so what. We mentioned it a week or so ago. Back in the early part of the 1900s, really going back into the latter part of the 1800s, in the seminaries of America, especially at Princeton Theological Seminary, uh, and in others, there was a movement away from the all-sufficiency of God's Word, of looking and saying, not all of it. A man named Rudolf Bultmann uh, came and he said, you see, I'm an enlightened man and we have to get rid of the mysticism, uh, the Kierkegaard, uh, uh, the kerygma uh, of the Scriptures, all of the mystery and the mysticism, and we just have to have empirical fact. And so he was ripping apart from the Scripture miracles. And all of those things that were supernatural in their nature and saying, those things are they're from an ancient past. We're enlightened now. We know that that's not how God works. We lived within a closed universe. Though they had an idea of an unclosed universe where the supernatural came in and mixed around with the natural. But we're now beyond that. As one of my professors used to say, students would come to Bultmann and he would give them stones for bread. Looking for life. And he would say, Some of this is God's word. Oh, the damning nature of it not all being. And that's why Paul said, All of it is God's word. And it is beneficial to us. All of this God breathed, God inspired, authoritative word is beneficial to us. And you might want to go, Well, what's the benefit of it? Well, here's the benefit of it. I'm glad you asked it's profitable to you. And you would go, I like profit. I like to be benefited in the things that I do. Oh, this word is beneficial and profitable for teaching, rebuke, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Awesome. Just what you love, right? To be corrected, to be reproved, to be trained in these things, to be shown where you're wrong and to be shown what is right. Because parents, don't you regularly enjoy the conversations with your kids? Mom, Dad, thank you. The time I spent alone in my room, isolated from friends and technology, has been such a benefit. Your reproof is sweet to my soul. And if you'd like to take my car away and my allowance, I would love that. That would be fine. Or whom of you, if working, was put on a a correction process of maybe you didn't get a good uh, review by your boss and they said, hey, we're not going to fire you, but we're going to work on a correction process here, an improvement process. And you went, thank you. I have been looking for someone to stare deep down into the recesses of my work ethic and help me become a better person. I am so thankful to have a boss and an institution like this to serve. Thank you. I would do it for free but I'll keep the salary. No, we don't like reproof, but it says it's beneficial to us because here's what it means. We don't have everything right. And most human beings would acknowledge that. Even on our own standards, we fail. And so God is saying, I am so loving, I am so caring of you that I'm going to write down these words of life because I don't want you to fall into error. And the error that you fall into won't just get you fired. It won't just get you a D uh, on your grades. It won't just get you kicked out of school. It won't just get you something little and such. It will lead to damnation if you get these things wrong. And I'm so loving and I'm so caring that I'm giving myself to you in this word so that I can take out all confusion by it. And I'm giving it to you so that you will know the way of righteousness, that you will know how to be saved. You will know the narrow path. You will see the narrow gate. And you will know to enter into it because I want to reprove you. It's not love for me to let you just go about wild and aimlessly in the world. Parents, right? It is not love for you to say, well, they're 18. What am I supposed to do? I don't know. Parent them. Silly thought. I mean, kids will be kids. We're just going on my feelings. God doesn't let that happen. He's an awesome parent and saying, I love you so much. But I'm going to reprove you. I'm going to correct you. I'm going to make sure that you know truth. I'm going to dispel lies. I'm going to expose them for what they are. That is beneficial to us. That it equips us for the work of Christ. Do you want to be prepared uh, to go and to, to perform the good works that he says he has beforehand for you, it, it helps prepare you here. It, it helps give you those things here. In Hebrews, it says it exposes your heart and your motivations all the way to the marrow and the bone. It, it penetrates down. How many of you have ever done something you wish you hadn't done? How many of you have not done something you wish you had done? What do you do with your confusion? Why did I do that? Why didn't I do that? Romans chapter 7. You hear Paul go, Oh, wretched man that I am. Why is it that I do the things that I don't want to do and I don't do the things that I want to do? What's wrong with me? Oh, I know what's wrong with me because God so graciously showed me that I'm what's wrong with me. My heart and my motivations, oh, they're just messed up and they're confused. But praise be to God that he doesn't leave me in this confusion and he doesn't leave me in this mess, but he gives me Christ in the middle of it. Oh, I'm not stuck in this trap. Isn't that great? Because guess what I know about you? You're going to do it again tomorrow with me. We're going to mess up. And we have to come back and go, but I know truth. I know truth. That what I see in Scripture explains to me humanity. That there's an anthropology within Scripture that lets me understand the wretchedness of man and the greatness of man. That I can see somehow how that works. That man isn't innately good. Because innately good people don't do what I've seen in the world. But man is innately bad. And they're working that out. And that what I see is God had to come and rescue and penetrate into time and space, into the chaos, in order to bring about shalom. That's what I see in the Scripture. So there's this beauty of Scripture. There's this sufficiency of Scripture that Scripture is all that you need in order to lead you to faith in Christ. You know that, right? Everything you need for faith is right here. It doesn't mean that God won't use secondary means of somebody sharing the gospel with you or preachers to preach, or churches to do, and to be the incubator of the gospel ministries within the world. But everything that we need is right here within Scripture. Why do you think it was so radical for Wycliffe and for Huss and Tyndale and for, uh, for Luther to get this book into the hands of people in their language? All of a sudden, it took away a power that the church held. And the people were going, whoa, whoa, whoa hey. There's no and there. It's an alone It is a righteousness from God, alien righteousness, not my own, given to me from God, not based on my own merit, because if it was based on my own merit, then I would have some reason to brag, but I'm dead in my sins and trespasses. Wow, this is awesome. The Word of God in the hands of God's people, changing the world forever in the midst of it. And so it is full and complete and breathed by God and sufficient. Let me make a quick caveat. Not sufficient in every question you have. Okay? Meaning this. I don't know where you're going to go to lunch today. And so you can walk out the door, go, God, show me where to go to lunch. You're not going to find it in here where to go to lunch today. Twenty-some years ago, 26 years ago, I was looking in the Scriptures for a name. I was looking for Lisa Clary. I was really wanting to marry her, but I couldn't find her name in the Bible. It's not a biblical name. (laughs) Lisa, I guess, extrapolated out, Elizabeth. We could go there, but that's a little stretching of it. But I looked, and I was like, oh, no. What do I do? Her name's not listed in the Bible. Who do I marry? Oh, but it's sufficient to tell me the kind of woman I should marry because it says a Christian should never be unequally yoked and that she should be a woman who's passionate for Christ. And she's a woman who has these attributes. And then I looked and went, oh, she's got those. And they're tied up in a really incredible package. Yep, we're going. We're getting married. This is awesome. This is good. So not everything is in there, but what is sufficient for you to understand, it doesn't tell you how to run your business, but it tells you the ethics by which your business should be run. It doesn't tell you uh, how much to give to the church, but it gives you a bare minimum basis upon generosity. It doesn't tell you everything, but it's sufficient. So don't get confused in what I mean by sufficient and complete in that. So there was a problem. There is a, a source of fixing the problem. So now what? The therefore. Therefore, what do we do with this? We know there's a problem. God's given us a resource that's beneficial to us, leads us to faith in him, leads us to life uh, in him. So what do we do? Scripture has to become precious to us. It's our lifeline to the heart of God. It becomes precious. We consume Scripture like it was honey. Listen to the psalmist. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path correction and reproof. You're heading over a cliff. Whoop. Come back. Oh, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving my soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes, Psalm 19. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey are the drippings of the honeycomb. Is the word precious to you? Do you consume it on something more than an obligation to have a quiet time? And, folks, this is a struggle, even for the man who's standing here in front of you today. And you go, What? You're a preacher. You can study the Bible all the time. I do, almost every day, because I'm looking for three points, and I'm looking to how I can communicate it to you. But some days, that's not precious and honey dripping to my soul. The Word has to become that beautiful thing to us that we go, I desire this more than anything else in the world. And so I read it and I study it and I know it. And parents, you work with your children in this way to hide it in their hearts. You, you live it out in front of them. You memorize it together. You do all of these things. Why? It's our very life. You don't come up to a pot of honey and go, eh. you go, that's incredible. That's awesome. In a non-allergenic, non fattening way. You just come and you go, This is great. Or you're in a dry and arid desert and there's bubbling up out of the water, a spring of crystal clear, cool water. What do you do? Just tip your fingers in it? No, you dive in and you drink from it and you're refreshed in it. J.C. Ryle, the great Christian writer, said this, next to praying, there is nothing so important in practical religion as Bible reading. God has merc- mercifully given us a book which is able to make us wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. By reading that book, we may learn what to believe, what to be, and what to do, how to live with comfort, and how to die in peace. Happy is that man who possesses a Bible. Happier still is he who reads it. Happiest of all is he who not only reads it, but obeys it, and makes it the rule of his faith and practice. And so we take this Bible that we know, and we submit ourselves to it. And we, like Luther say, our consciences are bound. My emotions want me to pursue this person. My emotions want me to pursue this business deal. My emotions want me to go this way. Cultural norms, cultural constructs say that this is what I should do, but I am bound by God's Word, and I can do no other. Sola Scriptura. It is a truth that isn't just for the 1500s, but it is very alive and very important to us today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for preserving it. Thank you for giving us a document that is your very heart to us and that it is alive and that it is powerful by the inspiration of your spirit to apply these truths to our lives to guide our feet along a path, to shine a light into darkness, to let us know what to do and what to believe and how to go about it. And Father, I do pray that we would be people of this book, that we would consume it, that I would consume it afresh and anew, and that it would replenish my soul. For I do believe these things, the things that we say that I believe in God as our Father, that Christ is the Son, that the Holy Spirit is the power in this life. We come and we proclaim those things that we believe. To you be all the glory. Amen.